Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come together and learn from your word. We thank you that you have provided so much for us, and we pray that you will give us attentive hearts and minds, that we might learn more about you today, Lord, that we might grow, and that we might go out rejoicing in your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremy read the scripture before the message started, so I'm not going to read it again. Actually, I am going to read it again, but as I go through the passages, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing all at once. I know that this passage may not seem like a traditional Easter message. You know, like the road to Emmaus, what I spoke about last year, or other passages that deal with the resurrection. But as we examine the scripture more closely, we are going to see that this is one truly awesome message from God's word to us about his resurrection. Last Sunday in verses 1 to 4, we saw that God spoke in the past about his son. And in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. We also saw that the preacher gave a description of the son in his person, in his message, in his work of purification, and in his exaltation. Before I get into the meat of this week's message, I wanted to explain why last week it seemed like I was doing a lot of reading of different passages in the scripture. Um, first, I was taught it was too easy to take a text out of context and use it as a pretext to make it say anything I want to say, which is why it's always important to examine the scriptures in the immediate context of the passage itself and as well how it fits in with the rest of the body of Scripture. Second, I was taught it is very important responsibility to preach the word precisely and understandably. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of God. It is also important to be diligent students when hearing the word of God preached. Acts 17, 10 and 11 says this, the, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were no, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. In other words, the Bereans verified the teaching Paul and Silas gave of the scriptures. And third, I was taught the real power in preaching is rooted in the power of God's word. So as we hear the word, his spirit has opportunity to work. 
As I read the Hebrews commentary this last week, I learned that stringing scriptures together to make a point is actually a very ancient method of teaching and preaching. George H. Guthrie includes this quote in his book, The Niv Application Commentary on Hebrews. During the era in which Hebrews was written, the teachers of scripture, e.g. the rabbis, teachers associated with Qumran, and some of the New Testament writers, built support for a theological position by stringing together various Old Testament texts. Such chain quotations offered defense of the position being taught through the quantity of support given. One finds this approach, for example, in Paul's letter to the Romans at 9, 25 through 29, 10, 18 through 29, or 21, and 11, 8 through 10. The desired effect was to offer so much evidence that your listeners shook their heads in agreement with you by the end of the quotations. It is important to understand this method because the preacher uses it over and over again throughout the book of Hebrews. In verses 5 to 13, the preacher will use a string of seven Old Testament quotations. Again, that is what we are going to be looking at, is just how he strung these Old Testament quotations together to exalt Christ. In Hebrews 1.4, having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they, we see the preacher making a segue into the next topic by saying, Jesus was exalted above the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name. He then follows this segue up with a rhetorical question. For to the which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Verse 5 contains a chain of two quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm 2.7 and 2 Samuel 7.14. These quotes show the son is superior to the angels because of his relationship to the father. Psalm 2.7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. When you first look at this, you might say, Now, wait a minute. He said, Today I have begotten you. Wouldn't this mean more appropriate to say he's speaking of the son at his birth? It would seem that way, except for Psalm 2.7 is quoted in another place in the New Testament. In Antioch, Barnabas and Paul went to the synagogue and were asked, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So they were sitting in the synagogue and they just got done reading the scripture and they come up to Paul and Barnabas and say, Do you have anything to say? So Paul gets up and he starts preaching. And in, in this message, he starts, and I'm going to start at 32 and I'm going to read through 39. And he says, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. 
that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. It was also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he's talking about the resurrection and he's saying in second Psalm, this is proof of the resurrection. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Paul is saying it wasn't speaking to David. This was something prophetic. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So we see that Paul is describing Jesus' resurrection as unique, something different. Jesus, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, and Peter, when he raised Dorcas, through the help of the Holy Spirit, both of those cases, they lived their lives, and they died, and they were buried. On the other hand, Jesus rose to a body that will never die, that will go on forever and ever. His resurrection is the first. And the Bible says that we, when we see him, when he returns, that we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That is speaking of the fact that we will receive the same kind of body he currently has. One that will never die. One that is full of life. One that is without pain. And again, this statement Paul is saying about Jesus Resurrection being a body without decay. He's quoting from Psalm 16.10. For you will not abandon my, my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It is so important to understand that a lot of the teachings in the New Testament have their roots in the Old Testament. That's an important thing that we talked about when I first introduced the book of Hebrews, and now we're seeing this, that he is going back to the Old Testament and quoting over and over and over again as support for the doctrine he is teaching. When Jesus was raised to internal resurrection, he was seated at the right hand of the Father. In 2 Samuel 7.14, God is speaking for his son in his relationship. The second part of Hebrews 1.5 continues and says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. 
And this is a quote from 2 Samuel 7.14. It says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him. And the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. In 2 Samuel 7.14, God is telling Samuel to give David a message. I'm going to be to David a father. In this verse, we see some of what God's message to David doesn't apply to Jesus. And it's important to understand this. This is because many times a prophetic statement follow the rule known as the law of double reference. And what that means is it has a reference to the immediate context of a promise to an individual. But it also has a reference as a prophecy of Jesus. And this is one of those where Samuel's telling David something. This is what I'm going to promise to you as you are king, to your son Solomon as he is king, and to all of your descendants as they are kings. But there's going to become a king who is perfect, who is holy. And that's the prophetic meaning of this passage, is what he is saying about Jesus in the future. And we see the preacher quotes this passage to show Jesus is higher than the angels because God says, I am your father and you are my son. This unique relationship where Jesus is understood to be the Christ, the son of the living God, was also recognized by Peter. In Matthew 6, 13 to 17, it says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So we see through Peter, the Father again is declaring, He's my Son. In Hebrews 1 6 and 7, the preacher stresses that Jesus is better than the angels because of their inferior position. Verses 6 and 7 say, And when again he brings forth the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The term firstborn in verse 6 speaks of Christ's preeminence. Romans 8.29 says, For those who he foreknow, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
Colossians 1.18 also says, He is also head of the body of the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Resurrection. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Colossians 1.18 speaks about Christ being firstborn from the dead. So again we see, God is calling on the angels to worship Jesus at the time of his resurrection. Verse 6 starts the second pair of quotations showing that Jesus is better than the angels. In The first is in Psalm 97, verse 7. The second is in Psalm 104, verse 4. Psalm 97, 7 says, Let those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. And this is the verse he's quoting. The word gods here is actually angels. It's understood in many different places in the Old Testament to be angels. So we see here he's saying, worship him. We also see the angels will be serving him when he returns. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So Jesus is better than the angels because of his relationship to the Father. And he's better than the angels because he calls on them to worship him. The fact that the Father calls on the angels to worship Jesus says two things about him being better than the angels. First, if God is calling on the angels to worship Jesus, they must be vastly inferior to him. Second, if God is calling on the angels to worship Jesus, he must be deity. Here we see the first time where he's truly implying Christ's deity. Implying. It's important to understand this because it gets better. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. When Satan was tempting him. So it's an important thing to understand. If God is calling on the angels to worship Jesus, he's calling on the angels to worship God. Hebrews 1.7 continues, And of the angels he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? Here the preacher quotes from Psalm 104.4 as the second quotation in this pair. Psalm 104, 4, he says, He makes his winds, he makes the winds his messengers, and flaming fire his ministers. This is telling us that the angels are inferior to Christ because they are his servants. The scripture, the scriptures tell us that the angels are created beings whose primary purpose is to be messengers for God, revealing his will and announcing key events. Exodus 3, 2-4 says this, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, 
And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside and see this now and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. We see here, God is using the angel to get Moses' attention. Once Moses turns aside and looks and examines closely what's going on, God then speaks. A lot of times that's how it works. In Luke 2, we see the angels appearing to the shepherds, announcing the birth of Jesus. An angel appeared to Mary to announce that she would bear the Son of God. Gabriel appeared to Zacharias to tell him he would have a son, and he was to call him John. Angels also serve to protect God's people. And the king of Aram sent his army to capture Elisha. They surrounded Dothan, Elisha's servant, and, saw the, and he saw the army and went to Elisha in fear. Then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Amen. When there is a need, God will send his servants to protect. In the book of Revelation, we see the angels attending him. I just love this. John is saying this. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Wow. (laughs) So we see again, they are his servants, and they are to attend him, and they are to worship him. He is vastly superior to the angels. Then in verses 8 and 9, we see God is actually speaking to his son. In Hebrews, we see this, verses 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Verses 8 and 9 start the third pair of quotes the preacher uses. The first is Psalm 45, 6 and 7, and the second is in Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Here, the preacher is going to show three very important things about the Son of God. First, 
The Father declares His deity in verse 8a. Second, the Father vindicates His authority, starting in 8b and continuing on through 9. Third, the Father confirms His eternality in verses 10 through 12. Psalm 45, 6 and 7 says this. I'm just reading it over again, actually. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So here we see, again, the preacher is building this foundation and he's going back to the Old Testament and he's pulling all these quotes and stringing them together to make a very specific argument. One that first of all and foremost glorifies Christ. Here we see God building up to a crescendo of praise for his son. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Throughout the verses leading up to verse 8, God implied Christ's deity. Here he flat out states it. There's no doubt. When the Father says to the Son, Thy throne, O God, can there be any doubt that he is God? No. Then God continues by saying, your throne is forever and ever. This traces back to God's promise to David. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne, his kingdom forever. In 2 Samuel 7.13. It's not exactly a quote, but it's tracing its roots. And remember, he quoted 7.14. So people are going to be thinking back to that whole passage and realize, oh, wait a minute. God made that promise too. The scepter of righteousness speaks of two things. First, the scepter speaks of his authority as king. The scepter of righteousness speaks of the son's purity, which refers back to his making purification of sins in verse 3. Hebrews 1.9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. This anointing is the anointing of the Son as King. Notice, it is God himself who does the anointing. Back when Saul was anointed, or even David, Samuel did that anointing. And throughout the Old Testament, when there was an anointing of king, it was individuals. Here, God himself is anointing his son. Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up 
Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. This is the second quote in the third pair of quotes the preacher uses. In other words, the sixth of seven. Psalm 102, 25 to 27 says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years will not come to an end. Here the preacher is stressing the, the Jesus' eternality and his immutability. There's a vast difference between being immortal and eternal. I am a created being who has an immortal soul. Everyone in this room, we were all created, and when we die, our immortal souls will continue forever. The destination of our souls depends on whether or not we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. Here, God is saying to the Son, you are eternal. What does that mean? You have no beginning and you have no ending. You created everything and long after everything is gone, you will still be there and you will never change. Again, that is something that can only be attributed to God. The zeniths of God's crescendo of praise for his son is in verse 13, where he says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is the seventh and completing quote of the preacher's string. This is Psalm 110.1, and it says this, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So God invites his son to sit at my right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And that's from Ephesians 1.21, where Paul describes his exaltation. In verse 14, the preacher brings, ba brings us back around to remind us that the angels are inferior to the Son because they are his servants. And are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So we see Christ is superior to the angels because of his relationship to the Father. We also see the angels are inferior to the Son because they are called to worship and to serve the Son. The Son is also superior to the angels because he is the eternal, righteous, holy king. The Son is also superior to the angels because he has been invited 
to sit down at the right hand of the Father. Certainly, the preacher is demonstrating just how exalted Jesus is. Certainly, Jesus is worthy of this praise and more. Why was the preacher sent so, has the preacher spent so much time exalting the Son by comparing him to angels? That's an important question. Because it gets to what I'm going to be speaking on the next time I speak. It's actually an argument. It's, it's, it's a method of logic that we use today. It's called arguing from the lesser to the greater. Such as, if a 60-watt light bulb were to be able to light this room, certainly the sun would light it so much better. And again, this is all about him speaking. God speaking in his son. And what he's saying is, if the angels were part of that messenger, and they spoke my message, and people who ignored the message came under judgment, how much more so those who ignored Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your message. We pray that you'll help us to understand that as we've heard your message and as we learn from your word, that we are responsible for what you have taught us. And we pray that you will help us to put these things into practice in our lives. Help us to exalt your name. Help us to truly understand that we are to be humble before you and to seek your help in everything, that we might walk humbly before you and live a life that is an example for others to follow. We pray that you will give us patience throughout the week and that you will, again, help us to grow and that you will also help us to teach those around us and to Speak for you to those in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.